Straw Hut Media. Ancient Greece was the birthplace of many modern Western concepts, democracy, modern philosophy, and mathematics, the practice of medicine, and even the alarm clock. A lot of our words are derived from their words. But with all this, how similar was ancient Greek society to life as we know it today? Today, we talk to classist Professor Andrew Lear. Aside from being a scholar on ancient Greece and Rome, otherwise known as classical antiquity, he also founded a company called Oscar Wilde Tours, which offers LGBTQ historical and art tours all over the world. Was ancient Greece really a gay utopia? How is pederasty different from pedophilia? Was Alexander the Great a big gay king? I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Andrew Lear has spent a lot of time learning everything he could about what life was like in ancient Greece and Rome. He was a professor of classics and has taught at Harvard, Columbia, and NYU. His courses on sexuality in the ancient world have been particularly popular throughout his teaching career. In 2008, he published a widely praised book on same-sex male love in ancient Greek art called Images of Ancient Greek Pederasty, Boys Were Their Gods, co-authored by Ava Cantarella. I uh, wrote a book about the um, appearance of male-male relations, courtship, etc. in a vase painting. Vase painting is an artistic genre from ancient Greece. The clay pots were used mostly for drinking at parties. There were scenes painted on the vases. And a fair number of them include uh, either direct scenes of male-male relations, or some of them have... Um, uh, some refer to it in slightly less direct ways, and so I wrote a book about that. Andrew has also written articles on gender ideals in the work of Greek poets, and he's generally viewed as an expert on the comparison between ancient and modern views and practices of gender and sexuality, which we'll talk about today. Besides his interest in classical antiquity, he's also the chief partnership officer for Rome, an experiential podcast company where he serves as a lead storyteller, helping create experiences focused on LGBTQ+, women's, and diversity issues. But his interest in ancient Greece and Rome started when he was in college with the Roman poet Catullus. Who mostly writes about his uh, relationship with a married woman, uh, therefore adulterous and bad by Roman rules. Um, but he also um, writes about, in a couple of poems, about relations with a boy Catalyst led him to Greek poetry, where he read more and more about the rules of love between men and boys. And then from there, I started just kind of trying to put together an idea of what was okay about these relations in ancient, you know, how the, what the Greeks thought was okay um, in ancient Greece. And so I started um, getting interested in the artistic evidence, principally because it had been so badly studied. Uh, it was, wasn't even adequately collected as evidence. It was interpreted in a very crude, simplistic way. And so I started working on that evidence. Over time, he became more and more knowledgeable on the subject. I don't know if you know the way academia is. Once you're a specialist, you're a specialist. When anyone needs an article written about something relating to Greek pederasty, they know who to ask. 
So they call you, <laughs> say, hey, Andrew, write this article. And then mostly you already know the stuff, but you look up a few things and you become more and more an expert <laughs> in this area. And so now I'm this big expert on this area, which is really kind of fun. When we think about ancient Greece, some of us picture the first Olympic Games, naked dudes throwing a discus and the like. Or if you read the Odyssey in high school or college, you might picture Odysseus tied to the mast of his ship, fighting the temptation of the siren songs. You could also just be picturing Brad Pitt as Achilles in the 2004 adaptation of Troy. However, the timeline of ancient Greece is actually a bit more complicated. Most of the physical evidence we have about ancient Greece comes from Athens during the 6th, 5th, and 4th centuries BCE, but Andrew likes to expand his view even further back. The Mycenaean world, where the Homeric epics supposedly take place, lasts until about 1200 BCE. After that, there is a period called the Greek Dark Ages, which goes until about 800 BCE. After that, Greece becomes more urbanized and that urbanization leads to classical Greece. So in that period of the Dark Ages, it's possible that Greeks lived in a somewhat tribal society, and there is some very slight evidence that there might have been initiation rituals in that tribal society that involved some kind of male-male relations, as initiation rituals do in a lot of um, cultures. And there's a lot of um, dispute about whether that evidence is valid or not. Um, I come down on the side that it's it's better than no evidence. <laughs> we have no evidence for any other theory. Throughout today's show, we'll talk a lot about possibilities, evidence, and theories surrounding life during ancient Greece. But no, even Andrew Lear says that none of this is gospel. We're making educated guesses and drawing conclusions based on the information we have. But we'll get more into that later. Andrew says that somewhere during the Greek Dark Ages, male-male relationships start to become common and accepted in Greek culture, and the social practice continues into at least the 3rd century AD. Also, you know, really, really a long time. It went on for at least a thousand years. So let's dive into one of the most famous kings in ancient Greece, Alexander the Great. His reign lasted from 336 to 323 BCE, and there has been a lot of theorizing about his sexuality. But what do we really know? Not a lot. All our sources about him are from hundreds of years after he died. So it's, it's, it's some undoubtedly uh, goes back to something that was said when he was alive, but you know, it's like a game, the game of telephone. Who knows whether it reflects anything that was said, you know, in, in what way it reflects it. There are a few things on which historians base their views of Alexander the Great's sexuality. He had a, a royal companion, which is kind of an official role in the Macedonian uh, court. One of his royal companions was Hephaestion. It does look as if they, they are portrayed as some kind of couple. But again, given how far removed the evidence is, Andrew is not convinced it can be taken as fact. And there's another reason he takes the available information about Alexander the Great with a grain of salt. I think that rulers or big political figures in the ancient world uh, sometimes used sexuality as a kind of propaganda. Andrew says that rulers might choose to portray themselves in ways that were fashionable at the time, and that Alexander the Great may have wanted to draw similarities between himself and Achilles. In the Iliad, Achilles has a close relationship with a man named Patroclus. 
Whether it's an actual sexual relationship or not is impossible to tell at this distance. The Greek biographer Plutarch also wrote that Alexander the Great kissed a eunuch named Bagoas, who had belonged to the Persian emperor. Historians point to this as further evidence. Assuming that did happen, I tend to think that what he meant, if he did that in front of Greeks or Macedonians in public, was to say, I am the emperor of the Persians. Still, by questioning the evidence used to make assertions about Alexander the Great's sexuality, Andrew doesn't mean that he was straight. No. <laughs> the cultural context, in the cultural context in which Alexander lived, same-sex relations were perfectly regular, and it is completely believable that he might have had them. We just don't have such great evidence. You may be noticing a recurring theme in our conversation, which is... Well, in the end... We don't really know. <laughs> when we come back, okay, fine. So what do we know? Today, we take for granted the idea that your sexual preference is intrinsic to your character. But Andrew says that looking at cultures throughout history, including ancient Greece, shows us that who we're attracted to as it relates to gender is not so intrinsic after all. There isn't really much evidence for that concept outside of Western culture. Sexuality in ancient Greece and beyond, Andrew says, was less about preference and more about okay and not okay. What made things okay didn't come down to heterosexual and homosexual lines. And in ancient Greece, there was no Bible to condemn you to hell for eternity. Though that's not to say you couldn't get in some kind of trouble. Like not being allowed to speak in the assembly or something like that, but that's, that's kind of the most extreme punishment available. So what was okay and what was not okay? There's a lot more evidence for those delineations in men than in women. So let's start there. First, prostitution of all kinds flourished in ancient Greece, as it did in every culture before the central state started in the 1930s. Courtesans and concubines were common and accepted. Second, it was not only okay, but even praiseworthy for a man to have a sexual relationship with a teenage boy. They're how a boy learns the virtues and skills appropriate to be a man is through this relationship with an, with an older guy. This relationship was extremely romanticized and spoken very highly of during the time. Though they don't talk explicitly about the sexual aspect of these relationships, Andrew says they most certainly had them. So how old were these boys? Again, not entirely clear. There is um, one poem, <laughs> which is of course tiny evidence, from the era of the Emperor Hadrian, so we're already in the Roman Empire, which goes through the ages of a boy and that uh, talks about their attractions, and the attractive boy goes from 12 to 17. Now, you might be wondering what was not okay. Any other male-male relationship was not okay, including with male prostitutes. Anal intercourse, not okay. Adultery, not okay. And this is adultery as defined by the Greeks, which was sex with another man's wife. Andrew summed up the rules like this. The cool guy does all the things a cool guy does. He has a wife, he has a relationship of some kind with a courtesan, and he has a relationship with a teenage boy. And the not cool guy um, 
has some kind of inappropriate male-male relations and commits adultery. It is clear that the ancient Greeks thought anal sex was bad. Uh, We have that from many different sources. It's definitely in the not cool department. In fact, Andrew says most sexual activities we can think of would be categorized as not cool. Certainly oral sex is just unspeakably foul. Um, And masturbation is mentioned occasionally, but as an activity for slaves to engage in. So really a question which people ask when they read the ancient Greek sources is, well, what did they do then? Well, in literature, the short answer is that they don't really tell us. They just say that you want a boy to gratify you. But uh, in visual art, we see quite frequently what we're calling intercrural evidence, uh, intercrural intercourse, which is sex where a man put his, puts his uh, erect penis between the thighs of the boy. It's not clear if intercrural sex was standard practice for all these relationships or if it was reserved as a custom for elites. I would say most of our evidence is for the elite, but I don't think that's a trustworthy uh, categorization because, of course, most of our evidence is for the elite anyway. (laughs) And we don't really know what people other than the elite did. But my general uh, view is that people not in the elite in all cultures at all times, try to behave like the elite. So was there really no anal sex going on? Really? Andrew says it does show up in scenes of so-called bad sexuality with satyrs, and once or twice among so-called respectable people. But it's hard to say to what extent this reflects reality. As I always say to my students, uh, you know, you don't even know what your best friend does in bed, really. The evidence that we have about sex in ancient Greece is similar to sex as it's portrayed in movies. That is, how the Greeks chose to portray it publicly. We don't have any evidence for, you know, we don't have people's letters, we don't have their diaries, we don't have snapshots. So we don't know what they really did. Women's lives and sexuality, on the other hand, is even more opaque. Luckily, there is still some evidence to pull from. Everybody's heard of the poet Sappho, so we have poems which are which clearly reference female female desires and perhaps relationships andrew also said it's likely that female female sex didn't count as sex at the time and that the greeks just didn't care what women did in private when we come back gay utopia fact or fiction From what we've learned so far about same-sex relationships in ancient Greece, what do you think? Was it a gay paradise, or was it simply a different culture? Clearly, there was a kind of same-sex relationship that was not only practiced, but even praised. And if you compare ancient Greece to our own culture up to about 50 years ago, there was undoubtedly much more room for same-sex relationships. It certainly has long served as proof that our rules about sexuality are not, you know, some kind of eternal verity, that other cultures have different rules. And that's true of a lot of cultures, but ancient Greece is a culture we know about and also that we value. Andrew's view is that sexuality as a concept is a matter of rules. All cultures have their own rules to govern their sexuality, and even though the rules may be absurd, they're a crucial part of human sexuality. So in our culture, we have a lot of debate about what the rules should be. 
but we sort of don't deny the fundamental principle that there should be rules. And even though we have rules, the rules are malleable, they're complicated, they're complex, and that makes people worry. They're worried about what they themselves do, and they're worried about what other people do. And they're just constantly, there's like the Rules Committee on Sexuality operates 24-7. <laughs> and so the integrates had their, had their rules, and we have our rules, and they're just different rules. The rules don't just come out of nowhere, though. They're based on the basic concepts that structure society. Um, We take for granted that sexuality has a lot to do with marriage. But of course, marriage has a lot to do with the organization of an industrial society. Similarly, Andrew says Greece was a warrior society. What really mattered to the Greeks was whether or not a man could stand on a battlefield and fight. As a result, everything in Greek culture was influenced by that. At the end of the day, Andrew says it's difficult to translate between ancient Greece and the modern world. Can you look at the Greeks and think that there's some evidence in here for men who were what we call gay? Right? There are men who said, um, you know, I'm particularly enthusiastic about boys. That's a, a poetic thing. You say, oh, I'm a boy lover. Who knows whether that, how much of that, their life that reflects. And certainly we're probably married, et cetera, et cetera. There's probably a whole other life going on as well. The question of trans people in ancient Greece is also complicated. There were like uh, priesthoods in Asia Minor where guys castrated themselves. Those play a fairly large role, at least in the Roman imagination. Um, does, is, is that in some relationship to modern trans identity? Really hard to say. Maybe. It's very hard to say. You're starting with a modern set of concepts and trying to identify people in the ancient world. And of course, we only hear about the ancient world from people in the ancient world. So we hear about it in their conceptual terms. So, I don't know. So let's talk now about the differences between pederasty, which we've been talking about today, and pedophilia. Ped is, um, as in pedagogy, it's the word for child. And um, the eros part is from eros, as in the god of desire or desire. So it's uh, the love of boys is what pederasty means. There are many different words for different kinds of love in ancient Greece. Among them are eros, as Andrew explained, is love of the sexual kind. Think of the word erotic. Another word for love is philia, which usually means an affectionate regard. Think of the word cinephile, which is a person who loves film. It is strange, then, that linguists chose philia when naming pedophilia. Andrew wants to make it clear that pederasty in ancient Greece is not the same thing as the modern concept of pedophilia. So, um, pedophilia is meant to be a personal, um, like, again, it's, it's like the way we see sexuality. It's a personal thing. One person feels it strongly. And it's um, a sexual desire for children. And pedophilia could be the subject could be male or female. The object could be male or female. And there's no particular age distinction about what kind of child you're talking about. I think we're a little ambiguous about whether we think people in having some kind of relationship with teenagers is pedophilia. So some people would say yes, some people would say no. And the law varies from place to place. So pederasty, again, is not 
a personal desire. It's a social custom. It's something people did. And there's a big difference between a social custom and a, and a personal desire because if you live in a custom, a culture where something is a custom, you're probably going to engage in it unless you absolutely have some gigantic reason not to. Right? If you absolutely don't like that, um, then you don't do it. Uh, and, and there are such cases in the ancient world. The um, biographer, the Roman emperor Claudius, listing his characteristics, says that he wasn't interested in boys. So Claudius clearly was like, he was a person who felt none of this desire and therefore didn't do it. But pederasty is just generally something people did. And it's very specific that it's about adult men and teenage boys. Even though Brad Pitt looks so natural in his breastplate, society in ancient Greece was really not much like it is today. It's a really a very odd society. We tend to think of the Greeks as some kind of ancestors, uh, but we only do that by ignoring gigantic things about them. It's a very foreign society. And I think the sexuality thing is, is a great way to dive into that because it's so foreign. Andrew's interest in historic sexuality goes far beyond ancient Greece. In addition to giving tours in Greece, he also has tours in Italy. So the Italian Renaissance, I think, is very interesting from a history of sexuality perspective. Andrew says that the Italian Renaissance is where our modern concepts of homosexuality began. It's still very much more man-boy, not man-man, in the way people think about it. But uh, still, there's a definite sense that that's a characteristic of specific people starts to form. And this is not much studied by people who do studies in the history of homosexuality, but um, that's because most of the people who do that are from Northern Europe and America. <laughs> they don't know the Italian evidence, so they're not all that interested in it. But there's a lot of interesting evidence in the Renaissance. And a lot of major figures in the Renaissance were some proto-proto version of what we call gay. Oscar Wilde Tours gives tours all over the world. His very first tour followed the life of Oscar Wilde from Dublin to Oxford to London to Paris. Um, and I haven't done that tour in a couple of years, but I probably will do it again. His tour of the National Portrait Gallery in London stemmed from his research into Oscar Wilde. So I went in and I started finding all this great stuff. Now, he gives tours at the Metropolitan Museum and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. Which are called the Gay Secrets of the Metropolitan and the Gay Secrets of the MFA. Um, and we see a lot of kind of interesting things about uh, a pretty wide spectrum of LGBT issues in the museum, starting with ancient Greece, but then going up to like, you know, Gertrude Stein or what, whatever, whatever's in the museum. And he's done a tour in Berlin which is a great place for history of sexuality. And I uh, think of doing ones in Southern Spain and Morocco, which would be great. Where would you like to catch an Oscar Wilde tour? Go check out OscarWildeTours.com and follow them on Facebook so you can keep up with all the new and exciting LGBTQ plus tours around the U.S. and beyond.
Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. We're taking a short break next week as we plan for the new year, but we'll be back on January 8th with more stories about LGBTQ people and culture. In, in all things, you have to think people try to live up to the values of their culture, but we all know that we all fail. So presumably everybody in ancient Greece failed as well.